0: Howdy everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Roundup. Uh, very special episode because we are joined by Mr. Tim Peterson of Cane Island. Uh, welcome, Tim, and of course, welcome, Mark. What's going on, fellas?
1: Hey, hey. All right. Now, before we get into the good stuff, you know, we got to do the reveal. The <laughs> the orange bull market pants are back, and the Bitcoin bull is.
0: Wow. Back. Wow. Now that wow. doesn't Let's mean go.
1: crypto winter is over. Winter. It's still winter, and it's going to be winter for a while. But the bear market is over. Bull market's engaged. We might have another bear market before the end of winter, don't know, but we're going to talk about that today.
0: Tim, did you did you know about Mark's sock reveal? Did you well, know this was coming? I,
1: I actually have socks.
2: I didn't wear my Bitcoin <laughs> socks today because they're pretty thin and it's it's 20 degrees here in Texas, um, the coldest day of the year probably. So I'm not wearing my Bitcoin socks, but I actually do have some.
0: This is basically our version of Punxsutawney Phil. Uh, I'm just waiting to see what, uh, what type of socks Mark has and that's going to... De- that's going to determine my vibe for the rest of the week, basically. Well, six more,
2: uh, we're, we're, it really is going to be six more weeks of winter, and then springtime's going
0: to going to come around. So that's mm-hmm. a good good analogy. I love it. Uh, you know what? I actually just recently learned though that Punxsutawney Phil is only right uh, less than forty percent of the time. So you really can't it's trust. It's Like Wall Street, actually, yeah. Wall Street oh, analysts,
2: actually, he's he's misinterpreted. If you if you look at the guys in the in the suits, they will tell you, that P- Phil always gets it right, but sometimes they misinterpret his groundhog ease. Mm.
1: Ah, that's so good. That's, that's really so good. What oh, have at the Fed? I love it. I love it.
0: <laughs> that's epic. Um, all right, guys, we've got a really uh, great episode today because, you know, Mark and I have been wanting to do an episode for a long time on uh, valuation methodologies for Bitcoin specifically. Uh, Tim, I've heard that you are the guy. We talked earlier this week. You sent over a whole bunch of great slides. So I want to get into your methodology for valuing Bitcoin, other cryptos in general. So this is always the most nerve-wracking part for me. I'm going to try to share my screen here. All right, uh, Tim. So let's just let's just kick it off right here. We're looking at a slide: uh, Bitcoin valuation fundamentals. So we're looking at the price, network value, and the adoption curve, along with some annotation here. You just kind of set set the scene here. What's your overall framework here, and like, what are we looking at with this chart? Yeah, let me give you a little bit of, of my background because
2: that'll explain how I came across um, across this. So I'm an investment manager. I've been in institutional investment management, particularly asset management, for 30 years, um, ever since I graduated college. Um, And I went and got my master's degree in finance. But all of the elective courses that I took were computer science classes and not intro to. I took C, C++, HTML. And I had been an aerospace engineering student for a while before that. Uh, and, and, in fact, was a, a computer science major for about two semesters. So I had quite a bit of background in computer science. And, in fact, one of my first jobs early in my career was as a software designer for a Fortune 500 firm where we designed um, cash flow models for, um, for asset-backed and mortgage-backed securities. So I had mm. this quant background that, that spilled into um, the computer science realm, although my field and, and expertise is in, in finance. And money management. So, I um, started my own firm in 2015 and was making some investments, and and had heard about Bitcoin in 2013. Um, didn't you know? I, I got it right away. I knew what Bitcoin was. I knew money was electronic. I understood how the blockchain worked. I understood queues and and, and everything like that. But what I didn't understand was what's it worth? If I if I bought Bitcoin for seven hundred dollars or thousand dollars, what am I getting? In return for that. And because I couldn't answer that question, I didn't invest. That's my Mm -hmm. my investment philosophy. Understand what something is worth before you buy it. And as I got more comfortable with it, I was buying small positions. But this is 2016. You couldn't really go out and buy Bitcoin in a retirement account. And a lot of my clients... Um, have IRAs or or tax-sheltered vehicles so you couldn't buy Bitcoin directly you had to to go through another vehicle like a GBTC Grayscale and I was looking for some diversification I came across another firm uh, who happened to be a former client of mine and I was reading their shareholder letter because I was a shareholder at that time and they were the ones that introduced me to Metcalf's Law and I knew these people were really smart um, and they are still really smart they operate a couple of, of good funds out of New York Uh, as well as some other holding companies. And they were putting Bitcoin on some of these balance sheets well before Michael Saylor was doing it. So uh, the first time I read about Metcalf Slot was the first thing that made sense. And I've put 10,000 hours, literally 10,000 hours, into understanding network economics ever since 2016. Uh, What you're seeing here is the result of that work. This is about six years of research. Some of these papers are are peer-reviewed and published. I have three peer-reviewed and published papers on bitcoin pricing in different journals. Um, So there's been some academic scrutiny put to this. And uh, it's just one of the most impressive things I've I've ever seen. And the bottom line is networks have value. And that value is proportional to the number of users. And it's exponentially proportional. And that concept applies to um, Facebook. It applies to Bell Telephone. Uh, Recently, I found out it applies to Tesla. If you look at the number of charging stations and the Tesla revenues, Metcalf's Hmm. Law works there. Um, It works for um, PayPal. And the good thing about Bitcoin is there are lots of data out there on the blockchain. So if you can grab data for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Chainlink, Ripple, Litecoin, Doge, you can do this math for every single cryptocurrency, and it works like a charm. so uh, rather than get into the details of all the math, let's just leave it at, hey, you know what? The the network grows in proportion to number of users and those growth rates line up um, very well over the long-term. I'm gonna explain some of the short-term deviations. They're not what pe- most people think. I've put, again, a lot of research into this um, and those, those jumps up aren't always what people think.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I wanna add one thing here, Michael, and you know, Tim and I got to know each other uh, through a, a organization called DAS Digital Altern- Digital Assets Summit, and you know I came across his papers uh, in in kind of examining the same thing. So there was a guy that that put together the I'll call it the original Metcalf's curve back in two thousand fourteen, posted on the internet, and it was this this parabolic shape, and, and people don't understand math, first of all, right? My math is hard, hashtag. They really don't understand exponential math, and we've talked about it, right? 20 linear steps across the room, 20 exponential steps around the world twice. And what they really don't understand is how log scale works, right? You and I, Michael, (laughs) trade barbs on Twitter about chart crimes. (laughs) Um, You know, when people show long-term charts in linear, it's just nonsense. It's not useful. You have to use log scale. And how log scale works is is it's this parabolic shape, uh, not the parabolic exponential growth curve shape that people think about when, oh, Bitcoin's go to the moon. But this is the Metcalf's Law network effect chart. But that original model, in the, there's variables in it, and the original model was aggressive. And Tim, through all of his research and work, kind of – and I'm going to get the, the lingo wrong, but whether it's the decay factor or the decay rate or, or whatever it is, the, the rate of growth of the, the nodes in the network matters. And so you can have a f- upward slope that gets you to 100,000 by 2021, which was the original chart. Then you can have the, the, the stock-to-flow guys who, who glom onto that and, and create another. And, and Tim always had this more gentle slope, which always angered the bulls but when you dig into the math is more elegant and I think, right. Um, which is why I've been following his stuff for so long.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and let me, let me just say real quick, you, you know, most people aren't going to understand my papers. Okay. I wouldn't start with reading my papers. Cause you're going to, you're going to just lose
1: your mind. <laughs> They're not as bad as George Soros's first book, which is unreadable. The, unreadable. the
2: narrative stuff in there is really good. And I think people like the narrative that explains how networks work. Um, but in terms of the math, I have some videos on my website that are much better at showing that math in pictures and, and explaining what's going on, um, and and I would start with the, the videos, and they're really short, and we can talk about that where those videos are at the end of the session. But but you're right, Mark. There's there's, things, there's a limit to how many users can join a network, right? It doesn't go to infinity. Um, the transaction volume has a large role to play in that value and that um, the constraints, and there's several constraints. Um, and it's not a perfect system, but models are simplifications of the real world. And if we can get to 80% of what we're trying to discover, we, we've
0: pretty much got a, a good picture. I, I have two, two questions for you here, Tim, before we move on to the next slide, which is one, um, I, I don't want to get too much into the nitty gritty of uh, the math calculations here, because I agree. I, I want uh, don't want people to um, want people to keep paying attention. But one one uh, box here that I w- would love to get your thoughts on is the implied value from on chain network activity prior to exchange listing, because I think even my non mathematical brain I can kind of basically worked out this idea in my head which is okay there's some value here you know as you add new participants to the network the participant the network becomes that much more valuable what i what i have a hard time with sometimes is like what that starting value is and then i'd love to get your thoughts here on why we see deviations around this curve that you've outlined right so i see here uh, that you've got a, a gray box which is mount gox price manipulation so what i'd love what i'd love to understand from you is how do we get that original implied value uh, to to kind of this is where we start our curve, and then I'd love for you to just touch on a little bit why we might see deviations around the curve from time to time. Yeah,
2: yeah. So the the start value actually comes out of the market. The market prices the network. Mm. Okay, gotcha. And and so really the 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 pricing doesn't start until there was an exchange price, which was about eight cents on July eighteenth, twenty ten. I have that date memorized because I use it all the time in my modeling, but the on-chain metrics go back well before that. We have yeah. user counts, transaction counts, user growth rates, um, the, the stratified sample of how many uh, how many Bitcoin are in each account, and that goes back to inception. And so once you get the math formula mostly right, you can go back and say, well, what would it have been if it was trading according to those parameters? And that's what that that implied value is. Now, you see it drops like a rock at the very get-go. The reason was because at that point, they were putting out lots of coins, right? 50 Bitcoin every um, 10 minutes, starting from zero. So the inflation was huge Mm. for Bitcoin for that first nine months. And then it starts to stabilize, and then you get this parabolic curve. And that parabolic curve in this log chart... There's there's legitimate math behind that. That's not hand drawn. You know, that is a, an adoption curve um, multiplied by Metcalf's law. And and that's the that curve. I mean it's it's a, actually a
1: pretty simple math. Um, that's a really, really, really important point that, that I hope you know people watching and listening caught. Is this is not a hand-drawn technical analysis line, right? Anyone can draw lines on a chart, right? <laughs> Just connecting points. That's not what this is. The core line is a mathematical formula. And there is a little chicken in the egg, to Michael's point. It's three. It's, um, it's a
2: Gompertz curve. It's Metcalf's law. And it's a present value formula.
1: So, so unless you're an
2: expert in all three of those things, you're not going to know how to draw that line. But you're right, Mark. It, it, it's pure math.
0: So, so, so let me ask you guys, why do we see some of the deviations around this curve here? I, I mean, I think because I have an price idea.
1: price is a liar. Mm. Price is not value right? The price is what two people agree to exchange some small amount of a good or service has nothing to do with value. When people look and say, oh, the, you know, the value of that company is X because the number of shares times the current price. It's nonsense. I mean, it's literally nonsense. That's not value. That is the market cap. It's the thing. But, but Tim will talk about some of the craziness early on that led to price being worse of a liar, a big, bad liar uh, in the early days. Yeah, actually, I think
2: if you go to the next um, slide, it's probably got a better picture we could look at um, in terms of those dots, right? Those four big, maybe five if you count 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, The the second one on there, the 2013, that is not just Mm -hmm. the documented price manipulation. The guy doing the manipulation was in court in Japan and said, I did it. I was running Willy Bot, right? And Willy Bot was um, a computer program that bought and sold Bitcoin on the Mt. Gox Exchange, which was the only game in town at inflated prices. They did that so they could line their own pockets to recoup losses from a hack that had occurred earlier. And so there, there's, this is not an opinion, right? When the guy says, I was manipulating Bitcoin prices, I'm sorry, and he's uh, telling it to the judge... It happened, okay? Now, there's been other research on this. This is just not mine. But Neil Gandahl um, had done some great work. And at the time he published his paper was also the time that um, the Mt. Doc CEO admitted that he was manipulating prices in 2013. Now, that's important because when you do a, a price um analysis or any kind of technical analysis or any kind of curve fit modeling, you got to exclude that data. That's not market supply supply and demand working at all at that time. So you can't use 2013. So rainbow charts, you know, any of that stuff, it it doesn't apply. Okay. Because that's not what happened. What happened was the guys on the computer were messing around and making fake prices and inducing people to buy. Well,
1: and this happens every single cycle in every single asset throughout history, right, is is you have these cycles. That's why I talk about winter, right? It's it's not that crypto winter means always bear market. What it means is there's a cycle of time where you're correcting back toward fair value. Uh, stocks go through winters. Stocks go through, and what happens is early days, right? If you go back to you know 2012, 2013. The early days, the actual investors invest in an asset and the investors, you know, do the work, look at the fundamentals, try to calculate value and, and and buy accordingly. Then as the price starts to move, then the speculators come in and the speculators come in and drive that price above fair value. And if you're really unlucky, like in the stock market today or in, in Bitcoin back back then or again in in 18, uh, 17, uh, you get the leveraged speculators that come in and really, and that's what creates that parabolic move that everybody's like, oh, we're going to the moon. No, that is manipulation. Mm -hmm. That is fake demand. And this was even worse, right? This was an egregious use of basically spoofing, which A.P. Morgan does all the time to gold, uh, the other direction. Uh, and silver and, and everything else. But um...
2: I, I would just say you know, there's a paper and it's out there. It's on, on my website. It's called um, To the Moon, A History of Bitcoin Price Manipulation. That one's not real mathy. Um, it, it goes through the history of what happened at Mt. Gox. It talks about the, the, um, the allegations around Tether and Bitfinex in 2017. It talks about the Bitwise report in 2019 and how all the exchanges were just completely faking Volume Just fraudulently putting out false volumes to induce people to trade and and it's narrative right so you could read it you can understand that there's lots of funny business and it's happening at the exchange level now it's not all funny business there's certainly FOmo right there's certainly people buying in and it's not like I'm saying, hey, uh, you know we weren't getting user growth at that time we were. Um, and, and there's another thing that happens with Bitcoin that we'll talk about much later. But, um, you know, there's some legitimate reasons for 2017 on for those price spikes. And it's it's not what people think. It has nothing to do with the supply of coins. Um, it has everything to do with, with the. And means. it's
1: happening now in NFTs, right? It's happening in CryptoPunks and, and Bored Apes. You've got people <laughs> who are taking flash loans, buying their own ape from themselves using a spoof account. And that is price manipulation, and mm-hmm. that that will eventually end. But that doesn't change the nature of the growth curve, of the value of the community or the network.
0: So I, I have two questions about this specific chart here that we're looking at. Um, is is one? Uh, you know, these the estimated value of Bitcoin network per Bitcoin here. We're looking at a series of prices and dates. Uh, just. Uh, to my own lizard brain is the correct way to interpret this. This is kind of a, a prediction about where you see a price per Bitcoin going out into the future. And then my, my next question is, you know, this blue line here, you know, it, it looks very intuitive, right? I mean, you can kind of see where there are these spikes, either through price manipulation um, or through just human sentiment, getting away from itself, where we kind of deviate from fair value. But it, w- it would also kind of make sense to me that uh, you know, in bear markets, right after the big sell-offs, after the price manipulation or sentiment, uh, driven rallies that you would actually see Bitcoin trade below fair value where it looks like based on your chart, Tim, that, uh, the price kind of tends to settle at the fair value line. So a, am I, cor- am I correctly interpreting what that blue dotted line is and B, how should we interpret the, uh, values on the right here? Of course it goes below that line. Yes, it definitely it. goes below that line. Um,
2: not very much, but it does go. And that line where I set, that line's kind of arbitrary um, in terms of where I want the threshold of what I call low to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do use this model to, to trade assets and I want to be conservative in my my investing. Um, the, the green line and the, and the list of numbers, that's the low end estimate. Okay, That's saying it'll probably be, um, in fact, there's a statistical probability to this. There's a 90% chance it'll be higher than those numbers. Okay, that's assuming, assuming that Bitcoin continues to grow at the rate that it's been growing. Okay, and and that's not just purely an extrapolation. Now there's headwinds. Okay, there's we can talk about some of the headwinds, but you know the government's not going to like this. They're not going to like when Bitcoin gets to a hundred thousand, and they're sure not going to like when it gets to a million. And and you're going to start to see some serious serious headwinds. And initially they're going to start to come from the gold lobby. Who's going to pressure government to do something about this stupid fake gold. Okay. Because it's, it's really going to cannibalize gold a lot more than it's going to cannibalize fiat. Yeah. Um, but right. anyway, it, those, those numbers are extensions of that math. Um, I've been pu- publishing those numbers for three years um, going back and you, and you can look, uh, I'm not always right on the date, um, but I'm, I'm usually not off by more than a few months in terms of what that floor value looks like. Um, mm-hmm. So, like I said, those are, the, those are the low end estimates based on uh, the adoption curve.
1: But there's another point, Michael, that that's important is, is you say, why doesn't it go through fair value? Like if you look at this version of, of the stock Chart there. There's one that does a, a a regression of stock prices since 1871. And you think about it, stocks should rise, right? Why? Well, because of inflation, and because of of earnings growth, and so and dividends. So stocks should rise about six percent uh, in real terms over the long term. And so there is this same type of of. It's not parabolic. It's more linear, but you see big spikes above it because of FOMO. But then you're right you see corrections down below it and if you think about a regression you should spend as much time above as below just how the math works right if, if you know the average is, is 10 and you're at five for a long time you got to be at 15 for a long time to, to make the average work but that's a a linear average with a parabolic model there's some subtle differences and then there's another difference with uh bitcoin hmm. the liquid supply is relatively small versus the hodlers and so hodlers defend fair value so to speak because one many of them have done the work two a bunch of them don't have any you know basis so they're not selling and so the the people who are selling are the people who bought at the peaks and they are exhausted they're gone when we get back down to the network value or they want the so tax it is loss. this
2: <laughs> there's a tax there's a tax reason to sell those losses as well um, yeah. so yeah. so there is incentive to, to sell when it goes down
1: yeah it's why it's why january and march are crappy months yes that's because exactly in january right. uh the chinese are selling for lunar new year and in march americans sell to pay their taxes
0: yeah, guys. I just want to for those who aren't following along on the video and listening to audio here. I just want to read uh, a couple of these values off before we move on to the next slide. Uh, so, value that I'm looking at here is by the end of 2022, you've got a price here of 55,000 uh, per Bitcoin uh, by 2023, 101,000, 2024, 181,000, and then it kind of continues to go up all the way to uh, the end of 2033 we have a price of just under $8 million uh, per Bitcoin. Guys, if you're following along on the audio, which is what I typically do, uh, head over to our YouTube, you can kind of check out these slides yourself. What I, what I like uh, about this framework here too is that we've kind of got our long-term uh, model here for the value of Bitcoin, but also in the short run, there are obviously some very different factors that drive price. Um, so Tim, you want to just kind of take us through what we're looking at uh, with this chart here? Yeah, yeah. The, you
2: know, transactions are an important part of a network. Right. And where the network has value. And let me just give you an analogy. We got, let's say we've got a road system. You have a, a wonderful road system and nobody drives on the road. The value of the network is zero. Okay. Um, now let's say you've got a road system and everybody is on the road at the exact same time, such that nobody's going anywhere. It's not just the traffic jam. People are literally parked on the road, bumper to bumper, and nobody's going anywhere. The value of the network is zero. So at the extremes, You have zero value with nobody using it and zero value with everybody using it because it gets overloaded. He just described
1: Gurgaon, India, uh, where they have 10-lane roads and literally no one on them. And, you know, Santa Monica Freeway. Yeah,
2: somewhere in there is a happy middle. And, you know, I love driving on Christmas Day um, because you get the road all to yourself and there's only three cars on the road. Okay, so there is a curve there that, uh, that accounts for transactions transaction size and all of that. It. It's it's relatively minor to network size, but it does influence it. Um but the more you see look at on-chain metrics and you see changes in transaction volume, um that influences the short term price movements quite a bit. Now the thing with on-chain volume, so um Bitcoin has this holding pen, right? When you submit a transaction, it goes into a place called the mempool mm-hmm. um, and it sits there and waits. And I want to talk about that in a later slide. But you have to incorporate those transactions, which aren't on the blockchain. You have to go out to a different source, get the size of the mempool, and incorporate that in there before you can get this um, light blue line here, which on a short term really tracks Bitcoin pretty well. Um, I think the R squared on this is pretty high. It's again, it's not a perfect model. I don't care that, you know, it goes up really high and goes up really low. What I care is what's the trend? You know, tell me what's happening, Where is it going in relation to the long term? Um, what's the movement in the short term? and and we can granularize that with other factors later on and
1: look at other things happening in the market. Well, one of the things I love about, again, Tim's work and 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 how you, just this this methodology for thinking about it for again, people who can't see the chart or listening, uh, you've got you know two lines, one blue, one black, and they make peaks and valleys. Uh, along this linear uptrend, and they are highly correlated. I always joke, look, I'm not a statistics um, PhD, but I can tell you that the R-squared between those two lines is really, really high. And what really matters when you are thinking about investing is directionality. You don't have to get the magnitude precisely correct, but if you can get the directionality right, are we in, you know, crypto spring or crypto winter or crypto summer, you know, those directional trends, uh, which you see here do persist for, you know, 12, 18 month periods of time. Uh, that's really important. You know, that's the first chart just sort
2: of flattened out. Mm-hmm. Um, so this sort of shows the magnitude of the peaks, how far away did Bitcoin's price deviate from that long-term adoption trend? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can really see, you asked, does it go below zero? I could move that line up a little bit and and it would, it would uh, you know, probably not really matter in terms of your overall investment right. performance. But, but yeah, it does dip below that. It's just really hard to see on the graph. Uh, you know, and, and it could dip below it by 20%, 30 40%. And I'll tell you, when you take a 40% loss on, on your um, entire portfolio, it hurts. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you start to question things. Uh, so it does go down below that line, and it has many times. But that line is set so that ninety percent of the time, price is above it. That way, when I do my investing, I say, "Hey, you know what? I got a ninety percent chance of being right." And mm, and yeah. as an investment and, manager managing client money, that's important to me.
0: I will say yeah. too, uh, I was talking to the, uh, my my co founder Jason about this. It's funny, like you can you can. It's very easy to look at a graph like this and say, "Oh, you know, in general, uh, you know, there's high correlation between you know uh, this mempool idea and actual price." Uh, but I mean, if you look at how long the deviations can be, uh, it's like a year. Right, I mean, sometimes these are you know it looks uh, nice on a chart like it's definitely going to snap back, but to actually experience that deviation for a year uh, is pretty significant. I was I was talking to Jason yesterday. Even when you kind of read history, you know, you'll read like one line and it will describe like a twenty-year period of time, you know, and you're like, yes. oh, I'm just waiting yes. to get to the big thing, but it's like that was like a twenty-year yes. period of history. You know, it just gets described. The Nikkei well,
2: index, no. the Nikkei index hit its peak in 1984. I want to say it has not recovered its losses from 1984 okay so yes you can wait a long time and this is true for all markets mm-hmm. um you know those alligator jaws closing that that is usually measured in months and years and in fact sometimes you can be swear they're going to close and it goes the other way and there's a whole you know set of finance that studies why prices move away from sensible values um it's called behavioral finance but mm-hmm. uh, anyway Let's, let's get back to the the network well, piece of it I,
1: the, the point one other point I want to make on on the slide here is is the size of the deviations to the upside right because of the ability to manipulate price in the early days I mean you just had some unbelievable I mean we're talking 200 percent 800 percent in 2013. Uh, and then it makes the, the 2017 bubble look like a piker, only 150% above. Uh, and then the 2021 bubble was was a bubble. And people say, no, no, it wasn't. We never got to that blow off top of 250K. No, no, you're missing the point, right? It's how far away are we from this never look back price or, or lowest base price. And it's caused by leverage. And there's just too much leverage available and, and because the liquid trading supply is so small, you're not the hodlers aren't levering up a hundred times. It's the little retail degenerate gambler, and I, I won't even call them investors or speculators. I mean, they're gamblers. They're literally gambling. And you guys have heard my story of of someone who I won't name again because they got mad at me when I named them. Um, but uh, you know, so they stole my Bitcoin. Like, what are you talking about? Like, well you know, I, I had it on this account and, and I had leverage and I got a margin call and they, they stole it. i like, no, no, you levered 100 to one in an 80 vol asset. You lost your Bitcoin. They didn't steal it. Now, the bad side is I heard someone say that actually is the business model of this particular firm, that they try
0: to get people to lose their Bitcoin. So maybe it was stolen. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast growing crypto native funds crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team, they ship product like no other, I would trust them with my own funds. So. Click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell him I sent you. So walk me through the difference here because we're seeing price deviations, right? Uh, Tim, is this, is this what we're looking at here? The, the deviation between mempool activity and price? And then here we've also got a hash rate uh, and price because it looks like slightly Similar but slightly different charts. there's
2: similar and different. So the question is, what's the size of the network? I want to measure value to a, some fundamental metric, and how right. do I measure size?
0: So you have to just pick.
2: you, you can pick many, right? Uh, you can look at um, number of uh, zero accounts. You can look at active accounts. You can look at transactions. Anything that describes network size is going to give you some picture of relative value. And the reason I've done these two is just to show you they can produce similar results, but not identical. That's true. In the stock market, right? You can look at price to earnings, price to sales, price to you know, to EBITDA, whatever you want to look at, right. um, and you from that you 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 get a picture: are we too high or too low or somewhere in the middle? And right now, this this says, hey, we're a little bit too high. Okay, um, we're a little bit above the adoption curve in terms of hash rate. We're dove the, uh, above the trended hash rate. Um, that doesn't mean it's gonna go down, but know it wants to go down I like to say there's downward pressure on it Um, and that's all this does is just show you um, different ways of measuring network size this one you've got up here is um, user growth rate Um, and user growth rates a a great measure to look at so bitcoins price has to move in tandem with its user growth rate right yeah those things have to move together and this chart just shows that they do. And in fact, that user growth rate, it declines. And it declines years in advance of when Bitcoin starts to hit a crypto winter or a crypto fall. Does it always correct? Eh, mostly. I mean, if you like four-year cycles, this is a graph that should make you happy. Look, there's a four-year cycle here. It goes from 13 to 16 then from 17 to 20. And, and it, it hits uh, zero at the same time, you know, like like clockwork. But the point is not not when does it hit and when's it bottom out. The point is there's a relationship here, and there's a meaningful relationship, and these two things have to run together. So if you look at, you know, our network addresses growing quickly, or are they growing slowly, or are they declining, that should give you some indication of where Bitcoin's price is headed.
0: Yeah, and you know, one uh, interesting metric that I would overlay onto this that might not, a little inside baseball from uh, you know someone who has got some statistics on media. I I personally think that retail left the market a lot sooner than than people think. I think uh retail activity actually kind of peaked around February of March um of 2021 and I think it's almost been even though we had that um You see it in the chart right there. Absolutely yeah, that happened. I mean, it's just funny because uh you know, some some audience metrics kind of line up with what you're seeing here just in terms of uh, you know, uh, user growth, right? Non-zero addresses. Yeah, so. you'll see
2: it in some other economic metrics we've got too. That whole consumer. You got Google
0: searches. Level. You got
1: podcast listens, downloads. There's so many great indicators. But again, what I love about that chart is people who look at it and say, "Oh, okay, great correlation, great information content." Oh my gosh, it's it's going down. Well, of course it's going down. Okay, it's the law of large numbers. It is hard to grow a large network look at apple right apple's growth is down close to zero think about that their 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 net earnings last year were roughly the same as as 15 16 now their earnings per share went up a lot because they bought back they bought back more stock in the last i don't know three or five years but whatever more stock than than the market cap of 491 Companies in the S and P 500. Mm. Just let that sink in. So they artificially manipulated the appearance of growth by manipulating the share count, and yet they aren't growing. And that's because everyone that has a cell phone—I mean, I have two. I'm not getting a third. I don't have three hands. Uh, so that's it. And it's just harder to grow a a monster network. And and Bitcoin's growth rate is going to continue to trend down. But the size of the network is going to trend up in an exponential way, which means the value will rise in an exponential fashion.
2: That's right. That's right, Mark. Um, Let's look at the at the next one, Michael. This has become my favorite chart. I just discovered this this past week because Bloomberg put out a chart of the negative yielding bonds. This is the Bloomberg negative yielding debt index. And it goes up and down and up and down. And the point they're making is, hey, negative yielding debt has dropped to a level where it was in 2018 and so so that your uh, listeners understand what negative yielding debt is negative yielding debt is like putting the money in the bank and instead of earning interest you pay interest so you put your money in the bank and then you put more money in the bank and you put more money in the bank but you don't get that money out you only get your original investment out so you pay them to store your money and you lose money okay that's a negative yielding bond in, in a nutshell and Some people need positive yields. Elderly people that are on a fixed income need positive yield. Um, Any institution that's doing asset liability needs a positive yield for their duration management. So insurance companies, which are a huge, huge segment of the financial sector, need positive yields. If they can't get it in the market, then a portion of those investors, a small portion, are going to look elsewhere. And some of those investors are going to choose Bitcoin. Maybe not in totality, but a a portion of their assets will go to Bitcoin. And you can see that literally in this chart. This is the negative yielding debt volume, the the balance going up and down. And Hmm. the blue line is the size of the number of transactions waiting to be processed in the mempool. So it's not the total transactions, but this is is the backlog of transactions waiting to be processed. So I want you to imagine you're going to go to a football game, okay? Normally, if it's just a boring football game, like any old day, you can get a ticket, you can walk in, there's plenty of seats, you can enjoy the game. But if it's the really big game, right, that everyone wants to get in, I want you to imagine that there's only one entrance to the stadium, everyone must go through that entrance, you can only buy the tickets on that day, it is first come, first served, it, the tickets go to the highest bidder, and you have to pay a fee to the person who's processing the ticket. OK, what happens when it's the playoffs and the Super Bowl and everyone wants to get in? You would have a huge line of people outside the stadium clamoring to get in, throwing money, saying, give me, you know, give me a ticket. Give me a ticket. That's the way Bitcoin works. There's a limited number of transactions that can be processed in a day. It's roughly 300,000 because it takes 10 minutes to process a block on average, which is about two twenty-five hundred transactions. Uh, And so there's this group of transactions that are sitting, waiting to be processed. And if you want yours picked, you have to offer a higher fee all the while the price is going up. And that's what this picture is. That blue line is people waiting outside the gate, clamoring to get in. Let me in. I want to buy Bitcoin. And it really corresponds very closely to negative yielding bonds. Now, it's not that negative yielding bonds is driving this. That
1: that index is, is characteristic of what is going on in the macro environment. Yeah, it's the it's the level of financial repression. Yes. In the world, and when financial repression is very high, the need to seek uh, better yields, uh, whether that be you know converting fiat into Bitcoin and then borrowing against it at uh, one of these lenders, any of those things. And it's one of my favorite lines, you know, the joke about you know the restaurant, you know, uh, from Yogi Berra. Uh, no one goes there anymore it's too crowded yeah 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 yeah
2: yeah and so you can see this translate into price on the next slide uh it doesn't doesn't work perfectly but you know this is not just fomo and it's and it's not just leverage it's not just manipulation this is fundamentals this is pure fundamentals and you can see in 2019 that bitcoin price bubble corresponded almost perfectly to the negative yielding debt index. In early 2021, you get that first little hump almost perfectly to the negative yielding debt index. In fact, there's, if you study this graph, you'll see other little ups and downs in um, in those prices that are very closely related. They're, they're highly correlated. It's not a perfect match, but again, we're just trying to get a picture of what's going on in the economy and how does that affect Bitcoin? And you can see it in both those charts. Well, and the
1: beauty of this chart is, is you see the the impact of, of leverage. And so so the gray line, which is the amount of negative yielding debt, leads the red line, which is the price spike uh, of Bitcoin. And then you get this total parabolic move uh, at the end of, of 2020 into 21. And that was people borrowing. Because again, if, if interest rates are really, really low, if there's lots of negative yielding debt, then people can borrow huge amounts of money and and buy an asset uh, that they don't have. Uh, I mean, that they don't have money for,
2: particularly in Asia, where you've got, you know, 200 to one leverage available yeah. um, and, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, that's a, and that came out. I believe Binance started that program in in early 2020, if I'm not mistaken. I think you're exactly uh, right. And that was
1: can... that was the big move that, you know, everyone says it was Sailor. Well, I mean, he make catalyzed some interest. But it was it was the Binance or Binance, however you pronounce it, uh investors, speculators, gamblers. They're not they're not they're
0: not investors, they're gamblers. Binance has to be a trend now. You know how people in fin- finance and finance, Binance yes. and Binance. That's like uh, with a little bit of sparkly, a little pink. Well it depends
1: it depends where you are, right? If when I talk to people in Singapore and Hong Kong, they say bonance. When I talk and it's like it's like down here really in the South, right? They say insurance. I'm like, what? No insurance. No, no, insurance, <laughs> like no,
0: no. <laughs> yeah, my my my, uh, my best friend is an English guy, and he always says uh, aluminum, uh, which always yeah. cracks me up. Yeah, I mean, it does make you sound
1: way. really smart if you can actually
0: pronounce it that way. English people in general have a huge like up because they just sound smarter uh, in general. I always tell him he's yeah. playing tennis with a net down. Um, all right, so we're looking here at uh, our. Uh, Tim why don't you just tell us what we' are looking at here?
2: Yeah, so you, you know the past uh, um, slide was about negative yielding debt, and so that's that's an evaluation approach that's sort of like Bitcoin's digital gold and it's an alternative safe asset, so it would be like the Mike Saylor approach to to valuation and why it would be trading that way. But then there's this whole other group of investors and it's actually quite large who think that um, eh, Bitcoin is just a tech stock right they don't They don't know how to evaluate at all. And so they will just trade it like any other tech equity, and this is the um, the Nasdaq two times leveraged mm-hmm. ETF, and then it's also overlaid with Bitcoin, and you can see that trend again. It matches up kind of well, but what I look at is the smaller bumps, like the bump in um, late twenty twenty one and and or, yeah and the bump in early 2020, those line up really well. And what happens here is you have a pool of investors who, first of all, professional investment managers are not trying to buy low, sell high. That is absolutely not what they do. They don't care about price action one bit. Their job is to manage risk. So when circumstances change, and what they will think of is, I need to, to shed some risk out of my portfolio. And they will typically do that across the board. They will reduce a lot of their positions um, in proportion okay Got not it. always but so typically what you see is they'll say it's too risky i need to shed some risk they'll sell bitcoin along with selling everything else that they consider risky and that moves
1: bitcoin's price it does have an impact on the price this is the greatest chart i've ever seen uh, we're only talking about four years because there's only four years of like real activity in this space where there were charts and, but it is the greatest chart I have ever seen. And I've, I thought I'd seen everything Tim did, but I haven't seen this chart. This chart is so great for the following reasons. People say, oh, the, the, the correlation of Bitcoin is going up uh, because people think it's a stock. Mm-mm. The long-term, and that's the only correlation number that matters, the long-term correlation number is still 0.15 to stocks. However, in periods of time, where leverage is expanding or contracting, correlations, particularly when leverage is contracting, do go higher, close Mm. to one. And the genius of this chart is using the levered ETF. The levered ETF has that same level of volatility, NASDAQ volatility only in the 20s, right? Bitcoin has an 80 fall. You need a, a better vol asset and leverage because leverage is what's driving the vol is perfect. So th- this is absolute genius, Tim.
2: Yeah. It also yeah. matches up pretty well with the Nikkei index um, for some reason. Um, and, and it only matches up in short time. Periods. Global carry so, trade. Yes, yes,
1: that's, yes. That's the global it, carry it, trade right yeah.
2: there. It, plus, I think the name Satoshi Nakamoto has an impact on the <laughs> Japanese. Um, yeah, they're big, big fans of Bitcoin for that reason. Um, so anyway, that's a picture of of where we're at with Bitcoin's valuation. Um, the, the total assessment, uh, if you look at all those pictures, is that we're either we're, we're trending down, but we're either at bottom or very, or or we'll get to bottom very quickly. And I I think we're probably price bottom sixty days now. I don't I'm not saying that because I want people to go out and trade. I'm just saying
1: how, this is not guesswork, right? There's, this isn't about yeah. hmm, you know stick. We're going to test your... thirty again, yeah. uh, more likely. Uh, the not. and but but that is that is where the base level of value is, and then uh, you know six months from now we'll look back and say, oh geez, what a great buying opportunity that was.
0: You know, one other thing too. I mean, just an observation from from a company building standpoint as well is this. This is a non scientific framework, but it's a framework that I do have in my mind, which is that you know whenever a market gets overheated. You know there needs to be some stamping out of sentiment in general before you can start to move back up. And one of the ways that I justify that, or that I think about that internally, uh, is that it's very hard to company build in environments where people, where speculation is running rampant and everyone thinks they can become a millionaire just from flipping Bitcoin or JPEGs. It's really really difficult. And I think sentiment peaked uh, at different times of the crypto market in general. I Mm -hmm. think you can really clearly point to the laser eyes and Bitcoin Miami um, and, uh, you know, F Elon, that chant, right? That was like so clearly the sentiment top in Bitcoin. Uh, It came later for other parts of of the crypto market in general. And I think NFTs have to be the last thing to capitulate in general before we can all just kind of sit down and say, all right, now let's actually try to solve problems again. Because from a labor standpoint, it's just, yeah, it's really difficult to find people who actually want to build things instead of just didn't you and, go to the portugal solana party i did yeah, yeah that was... so there
1: there you go i mean anytime there are massive parties like let's just set a rule if, if someone spends more than half a million dollars on a party
0: bad things are going to happen in that market well you know the number one question that i got asked at that party was don't you believe in the super cycle and for me <laughs> i was just like I, you know The ironic thing is I think we are living through the super cycle right now. I I mean, Suzu's point when he coined that term was just that it's unrealistic that we move in four-year boom-bust patterns into eternity, right? That was his only point. Now, people chose to interpret that, it's kind of branded, and it was going to be up only forever. But I don't think that was the original point that's being made. I think we're actually ironically living through it. But uh, I I want to talk about Ethereum as well here because I want to make the connection – um, between this this other chart here, which is looking at Bitcoin versus the NASDAQ, right? And people don't really understand how to value Bitcoin. So they're kind of just saying, eh, this is going to trade like a, a risky tech stock. Ethereum is, is interesting in that I kind of feel like I have started to talk to investors and they're like, yeah, uh, Ethereum equals FANG, you know? Uh, so Tim, can you just kind of walk me through, you know, how appropriate is it to use the valuation metrics that you have for Bitcoin and methodology that you have for Bitcoin to another asset like Ethereum, and then maybe how do how are investors looking differently at Ethereum uh, than Bitcoin?
2: Okay, so the underlying principle of Metcalfe's law of network size applies to every single cryptocurrency that is not a stable stablecoin. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to get quite a bit of price history in order to, to get confidence and get some metrics around there to, to, to properly um, estimate where that curve is, because like Mark said, the price is a liar, um, the value is not. And you do need a track record in order to properly value it. The, um, the thing with Ethereum is that uh, you know, people don't know how to value cryptocurrency, so they just do whatever Bitcoin does. And they'll say, well, Ethereum's a little bit more risky than Bitcoin because it's smaller and it's, it has less of a track record. So they'll assign a beta to it of something like 20% or 40%, and you get additional volatility in Ethereum but otherwise it's mostly tracking bitcoin so the correlation to bitcoin is very high but if you take that away and i'm I'm writing a paper on this right now it should be out in the next couple of weeks Uh, ethereum has its own metrics and bit and ethereum's price adjusted for bitcoin tracks its own underlying metrics there's an adoption rate there's transaction um activity that affects the price and that's what this chart says i the reason i put this up here is because You can see that green line. That's the long-term adoption trend. And I posted this on Twitter about a year ago. And Mm. and you can see price wants to hug that trend. That's where it wants to go. And the look at the next slide, it'll show you what what Ethereum actually did. It it moves right along, (laughs) right right towards that green line. So that green line, I, I look at the adoption curve as like gravity, right? You can escape gravity. You can go up and you can get on a balloon. You can stay up there for a long time. But eventually you got to come back down to earth and that green line is earth. So we're headed towards the green line. That green line goes up every day. The adoption continues to grow every single day. So it's not like the price has to fall. It could just go sideways for a while and you can get there.
0: So, guys, if you're not following along on video, what we're looking at here is a tweet uh, that Tim put out in on February 4th of 2021, essentially predicting the direction of Ethereum's price. And we're looking at the current day price, where it's basically followed the red arrow. I really like that metaphor of uh, gravity around the green line. Guys, we're we're running low on time here. I want to ask you actually a question that I'm starting to ask myself quite a bit. Big narrative, right, for 2021 in general was uh, the layer one wars, right? And are we going to live in a multi-chain world? Is everything going to be built on ETH layer two as we scale, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one of you know, if, if we're looking at history as a precedent here, generally in Metcast law type environments, one big network wins, right? That's why we have network effects. And you can look at Facebook, Meta's earnings yesterday, notwithstanding, they really just dominated, right? There is no really second best Facebook. They really just took the cake. So if, if, if the way to value all of these protocols is based on the network effect, then are we going to see one or two really dominant winners, and the vast majority of these other networks become less valuable because you kind of have this narrative, which is not one be- or
1: two. So the answer is the answer is yes, but not one or two. And and I've used this analogy many times, and I've yet to find anybody kind of tell me that I'm wrong. Is that there there were eighty internet protocols. Now there are five. Right. There's TCP/IP. There's FTP, HTTP, SMTP, and www. Maybe there's one or two others, but but that's pretty much it. And I think the same thing is going to happen here. And you're going to have you know, Bitcoin is the base layer. You're going to have Filecoin like FTP for files. You got Ethereum as the www dot. And then you're going to duke it out in the middle for HTTP and SMTP. And could it be two? Could it be four? I don't know. And But, it, but yeah, of the thousands of utility tokens, those don't follow network effects. Those are simply... Ponzi schemes most of them some actually have innovation or or tech uh, and those will be huge they'll be hundred baggers but that's a different game right that's a, a venture capital game it's basically crowdsourced venture capital with with scammers involved that's the only, of course venture capital has scammers too um, uh, look at the one that just got uh, with the black uh, turtleneck uh,
2: yeah, you know, I'm starting to think that Bitcoin is not part of the cryptocurrency ecosystem anymore. Um, it, there's a, a law called Zips Law that describes the, the distribution of um, who, who has market share, right? Number one, and it, it describes it perfectly for, for all assets and all, all types of things. If you look at number of astronauts ranked by what university they came out of, it follows Zips Law. It's just pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, Bitcoin doesn't follow Zip's law when you look at it in, compared to other cryptos, but it does when you look at it compared to other assets like um, commodities, equities, bonds, etc. So I think Bitcoin has left that ecosystem and is in the alternative investment ecosystem, which means the top of the heap is Ethereum. And and those coins do follow Zip's law for the most part. Now, it depends on what day you're looking at it. But it, like I agree with Mark. It's not one or two but you'll look at how many soda pop manufacturers there are. How many are there versus how many can you name? How many, how many beer brands are there? But how many could you name? Um, there, there are things that get used and get used widely. And it's a number that's pretty small.
1: And the rest are, the,
2: um, are sort of the hobbyists that will stick around. So there's yeah. going to be a and lot it's, of...
1: All technologies. This is true of all technologies, right? When the car was new tech, right? At the turn of the century, there were 300... U.S. automakers. The largest, I love this, was American Electric Vehicle Corp., right? So electric Mm -hmm. cars are more than 100 years old. And it was put out of business by Standard Oil and Henry Ford because they wanted people to buy gasoline and and run on his cars. So, um, you know, look, there are 300 today that you can name three or four. That's it. Yeah. That, that's that's the, the nature of
2: tech. Yeah, and and the thing with networks is if you're not in the network, you have a huge disadvantage. What do we do to punish children today? We don't we don't turn off the TV, we take away their phone. You get put out of the network. That's a punishment. Okay? And it has awesome. it has horrible consequences because if you're not connected, imagine if we punished a city that we didn't like and said you're not going to transact with any other city. Right? Well, that's a that's siege warfare. Okay. That's we, coming. That's coming with CBDCs. Yeah. That's coming. So, so when when you are not in the network, you're not getting any of the benefits. And that network's growing exponentially and you're growing at zero. So yeah. you can either join the network or you can die. And mm-hmm. we saw this with um, Microsoft Office Suites, right? It was Apple had their version. Microsoft built one that ran on Apple and then one built that uh, on um ibm and they didn't talk to each other right in the 90s it was this horrible painful process of doing a conversion when those got integrated now you've got lock-in and lotus one two three who remembers lotus one two three the spreadsheet it died right word star and and some of those old word processing programs they died it, it, there's there's one adobe there's one microsoft there's one amazon it, it, If you're not in that network, monopoly, yeah, monopoly. And that's and that's what happens. Networks create monopolies, and this went this happened with Bell Telephone. It was the Mm. only game in town in the United States for nearly a hundred years, and it got to be too big and powerful. And Congress said, "We have to break you up." That was a 13 year process. What's happening now? Google, Facebook, you guys are too big. You're a monopoly, Mm. and you're crowding out competition, and you're doing some harmful things. We have to break you up. That that breakup process takes a long time and it's really hard to do, yeah. but uh, and I'm not sure they can do it this time around, uh, but we'll see. But yeah, there are some definitely harmful effects that come
0: from large successful networks. You know, that's like a non You don't hear that view espoused a lot in crypto, and I wonder if, you know, there is this idea. Sometimes it's a little frustrating to me where everyone has to be supportive of everyone and and yada yada. And uh, I feel like this is a A view that is underrepresented on podcasts and public speaking because we want to say, hey, we live in, you know, go to this multi chain world and everyone can succeed. And I I feel like maybe that actually isn't the case. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And, you know, one dynamic that might be changing. It's it's not. It's not. Yeah. I mean, one dynamic that might be changing overall, I don't know if you guys subscribe to this idea, but, you know, Bitcoin is the only thing, in my opinion, in crypto that is a true money. And an investment is money, in money is very different than an investment in tech. I would say. So as as maybe Bitcoin is kind of going off into its own, um, you know, in own kind of land, and then the rest of crypto looks a lot more like tech investing. And tech in tech investing, there's there's disruption. And you know, MySpace was the first; they had it all right. You know, <laughs> they were totally right, but they got uh, they got scooped by Facebook. Um, so so maybe the dynamics are changing. BlackBerry yeah.
2: had, BlackBerry had that market share. Motorola phones had that market share, and, and they do get uh, upset. You're so, you're absolutely right, Michael. Yeah,
0: guys, we did the thing that I said I didn't want to do. We didn't get to our stories, but you know what? I this was this was we'll just great. do lightning
1: round. Just do lightning round. All on right, the two lightning stories round. And... Okay,
0: lightning round, guys. Uh, so the two stories that I want to get to are uh, Meta's earnings miss. This one's just interesting because obviously, a colossal amount of volatility. Right after hours trading, Facebook share Meta shares dropped by like twenty five percent. It was a relatively minor miss, but they had some guidance, I think, that was worrying to investors. Do you guys have any opinions on um, Meta's earnings yesterday?
1: Uh, Apple basically realizing that we can't grow, and this other company found this way to make money off our data, so we're not going to let them. We're going to do that. That's my view. I'll say
2: I was surprised at the volatility. I'm I'm not surprised that Facebook is... um, Leveling off in terms of their growth rate, I think it's a good thing that they lost users. Uh, not not because I hate Facebook; I'm not on Facebook, but you know, it demonstrates that users drive price. You know, that's what I've been saying all along: users drive price. Facebook reports a a decline in users for the first time in its history, and look what happens. And that price change—that's a proportion. So, if you lost ten percent of the users, you'd lose twenty percent of
1: your value, and that doesn't always get reflected in price. But yeah, I'm not surprised that it happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the big thing is they weren't the first. It was Netflix was first. They got lambasted, same amount, 20-something percent, because their growth rate slowed. Part of the problem is because of financial repression, people piled into these same seven stocks, the Fangman stocks, and they bid them up to prices that make no sense, right? Mm. Companies that are growing low single digits that you're paying 30, 40, 50, 80, 100 times earnings for just didn't make any sense. So the downside volatility, when gravity hits... Uh, Gravity is a bitch.
0: Yeah. Um, Guys, the next thing that I want to get to here is the Bank of England. Uh, So the Bank of England uh, is talking about, worried about an inflationary spiral, right? So they see inflation peaking over in the UK in April uh, at just over 7% CPI inflation. And they are talking about hiking rates more aggressively, perhaps a 50 uh, basis point hike. What do you guys think of, A, uh, just the posturing of the Bank of England in general, and this kind of extreme language that they use in terms of an inflationary spiral? Nonsense.
1: Nonsense. Mm. Right? It's all nonsense. It's, it's Jerome the Hawk pretending that he's going to come back and raise rates. Jamie Dimon saying seven rate hikes. It's all bullshit. It is to get people to think that's the worst case, and then you surprise. It's over-promise and under-deliver. Take the under on rate hikes. Inflation is totally transitory. It's 100% the difference between the 2% base rate and the 7 is oil and used car prices. Those are transitory. Oil is not going to double again from here. It's just not. And uh, so I I think it's just nonsense posturing. And uh, Carney, look, he's an ex-Goldman guy. They're all ex-Goldman people. (laughs) They are all in the bank's back pocket. This is all about justifying emergency low interest rates to make the bankers super rich.
2: I, I mostly agree with that. There, there's a difference between what banks want to do and what they can do. Um, they could not raise rates to the level that they want to because demographically it's just not going to be supported. And, and and there's there's nothing else they can do at, at this point. And I think you're going to see some... Actually, I think the next 10 years are going to be hard because um, the, the banking sector is going to start to see, hey, we're starting to see things slip away. You're already seeing it with the inflation, right? But other elements of their historical economic hegemony are going to start to slip away from them. And that's that's going to be frightening for them. Um, and it could be frightening for us too, because mm-hmm. what they do has consequences on your, on your life. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, but uh, I'm not overly concerned about um, out-of-control inflation or out-of-control interest rate hikes.
1: Yeah, Rothschild Inc. isn't going to go down without fight. Rothschild Inc. has been around for... You know hundreds of
0: years they ain't going away without a fight long time well uh in case we need any any other directional indicators uh, i don't know if you guys saw that the uh cover of the economist but it was uh will rate hikes you know continue into perpetuity you know our rate hikes going or interest rates going to go much higher so Economist contra- cover indicator. curse yeah we've got our Economist contra- cover curse all we need is a kramer tweet and it's basically set in stone that the <laughs> that they're all going to do a big pivot um the last thing I would say that's really interesting, there's a guy named Russell Clark uh, who's come on the show before. Mark, you and I have talked about him. Uh, He's the really, really good. He totally changed my viewpoint on inflation with this one line. Uh, there was a, a podcast that we did with him and Tyler Neville like seven months ago. And he said, if you stop thinking about inflation as this big, bad boogeyman and start thinking about it as blue collar wages, then you start to think about it very differently. And I was like, wow, that actually is a really interesting way to think about it. And one other way to frame uh, central banks being very concerned about inflation is it's like for the first time in a long time, blue collar workers in developed nations are getting a pay rise. And we're all like, whoa, unacceptable. You know, it, it, yeah. I'm not saying that's 100 percent accurate, but it is for me. It was just a different way of looking at it. Um, well, but
1: they didn't get a pay raise. They, they they got a they got an income raise, but their costs went up way more. Mm-hmm. That's theft. That's why the creation of inflation is theft from the blue collar To the elite you know one and now it's 0.1 percent it's just it's a kleptocracy it's always been a kleptocracy and it's it's horrific um for the average person so
0: well guys look i know we've got to wrap up here uh mark this is again favorite hour of my week tim thank you so much for coming on this was the reason why this was an we should have framed this at the beginning the reason why this was an important one to do is even you know 12 years into bitcoin's existence i think a huge Uh, impediment to getting people involved is I have no way to value this. So hopefully, folks, uh, this gave you a framework for some actual methodology for valuing Bitcoin, Ethereum and other crypto assets out there. So
1: this is going to break the Internet. It's going to break the Internet. We're going to break the the download record. We're going to crush those other you know, we don't comedians. even need to
0: say their name. Yeah, those other comedians. Yeah, we won't
1: folks. say their names. They, you know, the other jokers are just going to crush them. <laughs> Let me plug my website because there's
2: some, some good do. stuff on there. It's, yeah, please do. It's caneisland.digital. That's C-A-N-E Dash Island Dot Digital. And go to the videos. Watch the videos first. Don't do anything else. Go to the videos. Um, if you like what you see, you can explore there. Most of my work is free. It's completely transparent. I only sell um, one product, and that is a price forecast that goes out two years along with commentary, um, and that will be for sale uh, within the next uh, 30 days. But everything else is, is free to use.
0: Tim, we'll do you one better, and we'll just link your, your uh, website right awesome. in the show notes. And folks who are listening, uh, be sure to head over. A lot of great information over there. Uh, gentlemen, this has been a ton of fun. We'll have to do it again sometime soon.
1: Best hour of the week. Hey, thanks, thanks so Michael. Much, thanks, Tim. Thank
0: you. Cheers, guys.